This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey, sports fans. Welcome to RSO Podcast. Ron Spomer with another chance to answer questions from our readers and viewers. And I am being handed my questions of the day. Mm-hmm. This one is from Dennis S. He says he's interested in your 6.5 Creedmoor rifle that you had in the uh, Sporting Classics magazine. Oh, boy. <laughs> this one's a bit of a challenge for me, Dennis, because I don't remember <laughs> what my my article on the uh, 6.5 Creedmoor in Sporting Classics magazine was. But let me take a guess. I believe I wrote one on a legendary arms works rifle. If it's a synthetic stock, that would be it. If it was a really pretty walnut stock, it would have been the Mossberg Patriot Revere. So I'll just discuss both of those and hope that I hit one. So the Mossberg Patriot Revere was just sort of an upgraded version of the Patriot, which is a fairly inexpensive bolt action rifle, double lug action, Real similar to the function of the Remington 700. So most American shooters would be quite familiar with it. Um, Mossberg has really been coming on strong in the last 10 years or so. And they're making some really good, high quality, consistently accurate rifles for the price. And, you know, it's one of those lower price bracket rifles these days, like so many others from Savage and Winchester and Ruger that and several more. But they're just really inexpensive. And remarkably accurate. I mean, they shoot more accurately than the top-end rifles from 30 years ago. I can remember way back when, well, it wasn't all that long ago. I think it was in the 90s when Weatherby asked a bunch of us writers at a little meeting they threw if they thought they were crazy or we thought they were crazy for announcing a guaranteed accuracy of 1.5 inches. And at the time, we all sort of went, boy, I don't know if you can do that. (laughs) And now everybody's coming up with MOA rifles. So we've really come a long way. And this is a good example of it. That little 6.5 Creedmoor Patriot Revere of mine not only has a gorgeous walnut stock on it, but it will pretty much 
consistently shoot one MOA, maybe one and a quarter, maybe sometimes three quarters, depending on the ammo I'm shooting. So it's a great little hunting rifle. So if anyone's interested in that, it's your standard traditional looking bolt action walnut stock rifle. If you like classic look, I think it has a beautiful stock design. I don't know though, if they make them anymore, you might have to find them on the used market. I think they have had to go to all synthetic stocks because the walnut just wasn't selling, which is to me more of the pity. Um, I just can't understand why so many people would choose synthetics over really good looking walnut. But of course there is a price issue and and convenience in the field. I can understand that. Uh, if you're going to be out beating it in getting it wet, why not? And that brings us to this next uh, model, which is the all synthetic style with uh, coated steel so it doesn't rust and all the rest, Cerakoted and everything else. That would have been the legendary arms works. Could have been the professional one or the professional two that you saw. Basically the same one that's built on the M704 action, which is a rather unusual controlled round feed, push feed, combination action. There are a few of them like that out there, but this one was designed by, oh gosh, who designed that? Ed Brown. He's more well known as a handgun manufacturer and some darn good handguns extremely accurate and well built but for a while there he was building this 704 action and rifles on that and that's when I first met it I shot one of his rifles in 308 on that action and found it to be pretty much everything it was advertised to be controlled round feed and uh, push feed at the same time so you can just drop around in and slam it home or go through the magazine and you've got that controlled round feed so you know you're going to be pulling it out every time even if you forget to close the bolt all the way <laughs> And it, it was an extremely accurate rifle. And then it sold, I think the action sold to Legendary Arms Works or some, some guys got together and started up a new company and ran it as Legendary Arms Works. And that went through several different owners and buyers, I believe. Um, and they had two different versions of it. So it was all synthetic. And boy, it was a great price when it first came out. I think the price was so good that they couldn't keep up and uh, make any money on it because they were selling them for too little <laughs> that sounds kind of weird, but stuff like that happens in business. So they folded for a while, then started up again, and then got into some buyouts from somebody. And I don't know what all happened there, but the action is still being made. And you can have your gunsmith make you uh, a rifle out of the uh, model 704 action. And it is sold by Legendary Action Works these days. And I saw and tested a really nice rifle in 6.2 by 6, 6.3 by 62. Um, and that was pretty sweet, accurate rifle, really accurate for that particular caliber. So those were the rifles I reviewed. And in the 6.5 Creedmoor, we took that one to New Zealand and hunted with it and took red stag and tar and fallow deer, uh, pretty much one shot kills on everything with that. Um, and really impressed the, the guides we had down there who had never seen a 6.5 Creedmoor before, even though I don't think it's the greatest cartridge in the world for hunting it's darn good because it pretty much does everything the 6.5 by 55 Swede does and as we all know that has been around since the 1890s I think that first came out in 92 and it has been used across the uh, northern European countries for taking all kinds of game including moose and bear and all the rest of it so those are the 6.5 Creedmoors. Thanks for the question, Dennis. Now, this is from Jason N. What is your take on the Sauer 100? You know, I think the Sauer 100 as a European rifle is what you expect from European rifles, really solid and well-built. 
Um, I've always found them to be extremely accurate. I've got some videos on Ron Spomer Outdoors YouTube channel where we tested a Sour 100 in 308 Winchester, if I remember correctly. And boy, it was smooth and slick and quite accurate. So if you like German-made rifles, they offer those in a number of formats from synthetic to walnut. So uh, it's a push-feed action, three-lug, if I remember right. And uh, pretty slick, pretty sweet. I don't think you'll go wrong. Take a look. Robert P. asks, what's the safest way to remove live primers from brass? Oh, boy. This is not recommended, my friend. Um, yeah, slow and easy, if anything. But the best thing to do if you are trying to remove a primer that's still unfired from a brass case so that you can reload that case is to squirt some oil inside. Squirt oil down in there, and that will deaden the powder. I suspect a guy could maybe put some water in there, too, and leave it set for a while. But you need to, yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure if water will work, but I know that oil works because we are always advised to never get oil on our primers because that will deaden them. So squirt a little fine oil down there, let it set for a while, and then clean out your cases very well after that to get all the oil out before you start loading. But every once in a while, someone will come across some, primed cases and they won't know what the primer was so rather than risk it it's better just to uh, take them out so deaden them first by squirting them a little bit with that oil moose racks <laughs> nice title there moose racks i like it moose rask racks asks any recommendations on a good handgun reloading book well most of the reloading manuals will include handguns i don't know that i've ever seen one that didn't not all of them will do shot shells but generally you get past the center fire rifles and there are the handguns so hornaday nosler um spear uh, the powder company uh, western powders hydrogen powders pretty much any hand loading reloading manual will include the handgun information so just check them out read it you'll be uh doing just fine randall n asks ron what caliber has killed the most game <laughs> that's a good question but i don't know how anyone could know the answer it is commonly repeated that the 3030 has killed taken more deer in north america than all the other rifles put together well that's definitely not true but more than any other cartridge I don't know. That might be true, but how could anyone prove it? The advantage that the 3030 has, of course, is that it has been around in the deer woods since 19 or 1895. So it's got a big head start on a lot of other ones. But I don't know if anyone could say for certain that it's taken more deer than anything else. But that's the cartridge. If you just went with caliber, I think in the good old US of A, it's probably A30 caliber. Because we've got the 3030, the 300 Savage, the 308 Winchester, the 30 at 6, the 300 Magnums. There's a lot of them. And we've always been a nation of 30s. So I would probably put my money on a 30 of some kind. That would be the caliber. But I'm guessing that Randall really means which cartridge. And there we're gonna probably just going to have to go with the uh, consensus on the 3030. Because I don't know how you're going to ever figure out who's taken what deer with what cartridge. All right, Patrick B. asks <laughs> a nice, quick, simple question. 243 or 25-06? <laughs> well, obviously, depends on what you want to do with it. But even deciding what you want to do with it, they are really surprisingly close. And I think you could do it 
with either one. Obviously, the 243 is a 24 caliber and the 25-06 is a 25 caliber. Man, the difference between those two is so minimal. But the 25-06 is based on a full-length 30-06 case, whereas the 243 is the 308 Winchester case, a short action. So this could help you decide. Do you want a rifle that's a short action, a little bit shorter, a little bit lighter and handier? Or are you fine with the long action? Just going to be a half inch longer in the action, not a big deal. Um, but for some folks, they just like that short action. And the 243 is a sweetheart of a little cartridge. It shoots extremely fat and flashed, fast, not flashed, but fast, um, with not a heck of a lot of recoil pretty mild shooter. I mean, a lot of folks will start shooting with a 243 so they don't develop a flinch. And I think that's an excellent plan. Plus, it's remarkably effective on deer. Uh, some people think it's just kind of small, borderline for deer, but boy, I sure have never had any problem with it. And most other folks who use one just love it. Obviously, you want to use the right bullet and put it in the right place. That's always the key to this stuff. It'll shoot almost as flat as the 25-06. Depends on the bullets you use. Now, with the 25-06, also extremely fast, you can shoot heavier bullets, about 20 grains heavier than the 243. So uh, if you think a 120-grain bullet on a deer is going to be much more effective than a 100-grain, go with the 25-06. If you think either one's going to work just fine, if you put the right bullet in the right place and you really want to minimize your recoil and keep about the same ballistics, drops and drifts and whatnot, 243 Winchester might be your baby. All right, uh, Beaded B says, can we please get some more hunting stories like this, Ron? I felt like a little kid listening to Grandpa telling hunting stories. Oh, that was one of my videos in which I read my old hunting stories. We don't get a whole heap of uh, listeners on those because, I don't know, you have to be relaxing by the fire or driving to camp or something or maybe working in the shop and you just want to have some background stories going. But all I do is take some of my old magazine articles and read them and they are usually hunting adventure stories. I've done them on moose and pronghorn and elk and I've got, oh gosh, I've been writing those stories since 1976, so there's a pretty good stack of them out there. And we'll continue to pull those up from time to time and read those. So you can go through the, our podcast channel here and look for the hunting adventure stories if you want to uh, enjoy a little bit of going back to the good old days when hunt, hunting was hunting and men were hunters. <laughs> of course, we still are, and that's the wonderful thing about all this, guys, is that even though we're deep into the 21st century already, it's just remarkable to me that we have managed to keep the wildlife that we have and the hunter's heritage. And it's really something special that you find in North America. European countries have done pretty well too, but over here we still have this tradition of the natural resources belonging to the public. It's always been enshrined in our doctrine here in the United States that the wildlife belong to the people, not the landowner. You go to some African countries where they do have some wonderful management programs for wildlife and hunting, but there the animals are owned by the landowner. Um, it works out well when the landowner is realizing that he gets his economic boost from his game instead of his cattle, and he reduces the livestock, the domestic livestock, which then leaves more habitat for the native species. And if he can use those native species to provide meat to the open market, and his family and his workers and everything else, plus get paid by the hunters who come over for the adventure, 
they're double dipping and they do extremely well. And this whole program has resulted in a lot more native wildlife in South Africa farms and Namibian farms to a lesser degree Zimbabwe, but it's really worked out well. But here in America, of course, if you have a farm and you're covered up with deer, you don't have to let anyone trespass, but you don't own those deer. You can't go charge somebody to shoot a deer per head of deer kind of thing, but you can charge a trespass fee and it gets a little bit confusing. But in general, if we have public land, uh, the deer and the elk and all the game are managed by our, well, we pay for the management. We hire trained biologists for our fish and game agencies to manage those resources for sustainable use, sustainable harvest. And it's worked remarkably well. Starting in the mid to late 1800s, the 19th century, the initial conservationists were seeing the problems with market hunting. And what they did was say, look, we've got to put some limits on this stuff. We can't just be shooting ducks and deer and all the other animals anytime we want anymore. Too many people. So what they did was, it was quite a battle, but they stirred up the, the public sentiment, started spreading the word, and showed how over-harvest was the problem. It's not that we hunt animals and eat them, it's that we overdo it. So if you look at hunting harvest similar to the domestic livestock production, obviously we have plenty of chickens and beef even though we eat them all the time, right? Well, it's because we have a sustainable harvest. We only take enough out of the annual production so that we've got the food we need at the same time, we maintain populations to restore themselves year after year through natural reproduction. Same thing with wildlife. And that's why we have so many deer and elk and pronghorn and geese and turkeys and all the rest of it in this country, even though we've been hunting them now pretty steadily. The seasons will kind of come and go. They'll get a little longer, a little shorter based on the numbers because we're not controlling our wildlife populations as finely as we can domestic livestock, obviously. There's still wild free animals running around out there. We can take censuses and do reasonable counts and have a pretty good idea. But sometimes a storm will come through or a fire and you will reduce that population a lot more severely than you thought you might. So the population might be lower. The hunters then have a shorter season or fewer tags available and all the rest of it. If you're a hunter, you will understand this stuff. But in case some non-hunters are listening, I think this is important for us all to understand that hunters, this is why hunters always say we're conservationists and we are not depleting the wildlife resources. Most endangered species are not that way because of modern sport hunting. And I, we can argue about sport hunting at another time, but I don't use the term to mean frivolous hunting just for joy and pleasure and who cares about the wildlife. That's not what it is to me at all. It differentiates the hunting that we do that's controlled and sustainable from free market hunting in which it's like first come, first serve, take all. That's what that all amounts to. But I think we've done just an excellent job of restoring our whitetails, mule deer. Black bears are at full capacity and or increasing everywhere across North America. Black bears, imagine that. Grizzly bears are increasing. Mountain lions are saturated their habitats here in the Rocky Mountains. They're spreading into the east remarkably well. Coyotes have moved into the east from the west over the years, and they're now in every state, including Florida. This was a western wild canid, and it's already in Florida. 
Um, geese are actually overpopulated in many places. Yeah, there are some upland game species that are suffering because of land use. It's always a habitat issue with those populations. But overall, I think we have done a remarkable job in the face of ever-declining habitat and ever-increasing human populations. What a remarkable record we've been able to maintain. And it's because sport hunters pay the bills and they do the lobbying we are the voice for wildlife in this country. And that's why your endangered species are things like dusky seaside sparrows and furbish louseworts and little kangaroo rats and obscure species that don't have an audience defending them. Whereas hunters say, hey, wait a minute, our, our elk population is starting to slide here. What do we need to do to fix it? And then we pour our efforts and our energies and our money into doing that, and we get our populations back where they belong. So we're constantly fighting for better habitat and, and better management of everything. Well, that was a long answer that sort of got off the track there for you, Beaded. But I will continue to uh, read some of those hunting adventure stories so we don't always have to be talking ballistics or politics or natural history on these episodes. But hey, whatever you guys like. And the answers that I just gave, I could have some things wrong. I always like to tell you guys, don't expect me off the top of my head to get all these things exactly right. So if you write in and let us know where I screwed up, I will be more than happy to fix it. The idea is to provide useful information for all of us so that we can all help ourselves improve and and be the, the better woodsmen we can be and uh, the better hunters and shots. So appreciate you tuning in. Be sure to check me out at Ron Spomer Outdoors YouTube where we do the uh, – ballistics and guns and all that good fun stuff and rsotv.com where we do some longer episodes that include more hunting and more gunsmithing and that sort of thing and we really appreciate you guys checking in and uh, listening and watching here at uh, rso podcast thank you hunt honest and shoot straight (music) 